0: I would assert that Russia was among the most creative, if not the most creative, player among the P5-plus run in the Iran talks. I don't think there'd be an Iran agreement today if it wasn't for Putin. Why? Because there is a strong non-proliferation streak in the way that Putin and his elite think about the world. In that case, there was a vision. They just didn't trust the Iranians with nuclear weapons. And they want trade ties and sell nuclear reactors and all that stuff. But, but it, it wasn't just greed at all. Syria. Putin's got a strategy in Syria. He's got some strategy, which is that the worst alternative, except for any other, is Assad. Well, you know, it's kind of messy, it's sloppy. But, you know, I've had my ears open for years now for a better U.S. idea. If somebody can tell me what U.S. policy is, that's... I think what we're missing is that he may have, you know, the worst option except for any other.
1: I'm Cody Poplin, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 23rd, 2016. That was the voice of Cliff Kupchin, arguing that the United States has good reason to talk to and work with Russia on a host of crises, including Syria. Kupchin is the chairman and practice head for Eurasia at the Eurasia Group where he covers Russia's domestic and foreign policy, as well as its energy sector. This week on the podcast, Lawfare's Ben Wittes and Kupchin sat down to talk the future of U.S.-Russia relations and to delve into why Russia engages the world the way it does. Kupchin calls Russia a revisionist power without a vision, yet warns that the United States would be foolish to dismiss the country's concerns out of hand. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 167, Cliff Kupchin on Russia, A Revisionist Power Without a Vision.
2: Let's start with why Russia is militarily engaged in Syria in the first place uh, and why this is a subject that Vladimir Putin cares about uh, particularly.
0: Vladimir Putin cares intensely about Russia's role in the world and about Russia's position on the international stage. He thinks largely in Soviet terms, and that's really important, not in in, in terms of any sort of modernized Russia. And I always like to begin with, with former Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko's maxim, which is more or less that no major decision can be taken without the involvement of Moscow. That's how Putin views the world whether that view is accurate or not. In Syria in particular, there was a major international crisis, which like the Iran crisis, he wanted to be fundamental, to play a fundamental role in shaping the outcome. Secondly, and very importantly, he wanted to remove any discussion of Assad's ouster by force by the Western powers. And third, he wanted to make clear to the world that Russia was not leaving one of the most critical regions in geopolitics,
2: the Middle East. OK, so let's, let's take those in order. Number one, Russian relevance and importance. Um, now that's a sort of an oddly neutral principle. It's not a vision of what the world should look like. It's just a vision of whatever the world looks like with our consent right, with our involvement, does he actually care about the substance, or is this really a sort of pounding on your chest, don't ignore us principle?
0: Russia's a revisionist power without a vision. It doesn't like the world order, the U.S. dominated world order, but it doesn't have a vision for what comes next. I mean, Putin makes very clear, and, and you know, I've met with him many times almost a dozen, and as part of a group of academics. He has a long list of, of Kosovo, Iraq, Libya, where the West acted unilaterally. He wasn't about to sit back and watch that happen again in Syria. Does he have a Russian vision of the world, like the Chinese probably do with AAIB and OBOR? No, he doesn't. And that explains why the Chinese and the Russians are really quite wary of each other, but, but as far as Putin in Syria goes, He simply wants to be involved, not that he has a positive vision of what the world should look like.
2: So often when people talk about uh, Russia and Syria, they insist it's about the naval base. You sound a little skeptical of that.
0: Well, I just rolled my eyes, because if you go on Google map and pull up the naval base, it's something that you would probably not want to pull your speedboat up to. It's kind of pathetic. There's not much of a naval base. There's a much more modern air base, which they've refurbished. But I don't think it's anything about any of that. I, 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 I think it's much more about a guy who's in power now because of his nationalist credentials, and he's burnishing those credentials post-Ukraine in Syria. Uh, so there's a domestic politics opponent, but I don't think that's primary. It's mostly that we Russians matter.
2: Okay, so then point number two, remind me, remind me what your second macro...
0: To stop any discussion of Assad's removal ah, before. Ah, yes.
2: So this is an interesting question to me. Why, as the, the, the Russians have a sort of historical attachment to the Assad family dating back to Soviet days, mm-hmm. but why does Putin look at Russia and say the essential force without which we can't, do business, is a murderous family that represents 11% of the population of the country or whatever the Alloys mm-hmm. represent. Uh, why, do they, why is this the irreducible minimum for Putin that you would put your foot down and try to remove any possibility of a discussion of his ouster?
0: For a variety of good and bad reasons. The Russians don't have much influence in the 21st century Middle East. The influence that they do have is significantly concentrated in Syria. And even that influence is reduced. Russians' interlocutors are quite upfront that. Most of their best contacts have passed away. They were Soviet era. They were Soviet era contacts. But to the extent they do have influence, it is with the Assad family, and they don't want to lose that. They don't want to lose that foothold in an important country in the Middle East. Uh, the more important reason, though, is that. One of Putin's bugbears, one of his strongest fears, emotional, visceral, is of Wahhabist Islamic radicalism. He sees Syria as a potential breeding ground for Wahhabist militants that would then potentially, likely, probably, maybe, Bite him by returning to the North Caucasus in Chechnya, Dagestan, and Gushetia. And in this respect, Putin's not wrong, necessarily wrong, not all wrong. He sees, he genuinely sees Syria as a choice between Assad and ISIS, between Assad and al-Nusra. He and his advisors make that argument strongly not cynically and and truly believe it and in that sense he views this chemical weapons using barrel bombing autocrat as preferable to the alternative
2: okay so let me try to understand Russian behavior in Syria over the last six months in light of that last point. Mm-hmm. The Russians say they are fighting ISIS, they are fighting, you know, terrorism. We and other uh, non-Russian observers tend to look at Russian action and say their actual, their actual uh, concentration of their military activity has been against. Uh, non-Islamist or non-ISIS That's uh, That's rebels. Correct. That's correct. And is that because they actually don't distinguish between the two as you describe or is it because there's a cynical uh, uh, effort on their part mm-hmm. to mask uh, attacks on Assad's most important uh, resistance enemies under the guise of attacking? I mean, what's, what's behind that disparity?
0: Putin's first goal, time-wise, is to make sure that Assad and not al-Nusra control Western Syria. To consolidate secular control over Western Syria would be the best way that I would paraphrase what I've heard Russians express. In order to do that, you've got to hit and reduce, as they successfully have, the power of the opposition in Western Syria, which includes the Free Syrian Army, backed by the United States, other groups backed by the United States, but very prominently uh, al-Nusra, ISIS and other radical terror groups that we and the Russians would agree are terror groups. So that, look, the Russians think that they can. Um, The Russians believe that it is in their power together with the Syrian army, various Shia militias, and some Iranian support, to significantly bolster Assad, to see that he is not removed by the West from power, and importantly, to unlevel unlevel the playing field in Geneva, so that eventually, the Russians can play an important role in setting, if not dictating a political outcome.
2: So what, you know, a month ago we had this cessation of hostilities. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of discussion of it as a major Russian victory, both in Syria, but also over John Kerry. Um, And uh, I'm interested in your sense of first of all, what did they achieve with that, if anything? And secondly, sh- is is that the right way to understand it as, as consolidation of real gains and uh, as, uh, you know, dealing an appropriate humiliation to the Secretary of State of the United States?
0: I don't... First of all... I don't think that the Russians are particularly interested in humiliating the Secretary of State of the United States. The Russians don't really care about the U.S. They just know we're a power. They know they have to deal with us, but I, I don't think that that was behind Russian behavior. Look, I mean, I think we have to go back to the time when Saudis and other regional powers were at least posturing that they could send in troops to offset the Russian offensive. I think part of what the Russians did, if we think back, to the moment was to deflect any possible impetus in that direction. But more broadly, I think there were two messages that Putin was sending. One was to Assad. And we should all understand that the Russian-Assad relationship is not that good. Putin, to the best of my understanding, doesn't like the guy. they're, They're extraordinarily opposite personalities. Putin, I know from experience, is an extreme extrovert, is is very ferocious interlocutor. Assad from everything I hear is reticent, shy, not the kind of guy Putin really gets along with. Doesn't get along with Obama, doesn't get along with Assad. I've heard Russian diplomats group them together as the kind of person Putin just doesn't really like that much personally, doesn't want to have a beer with him. Uh, And so the cessation of hostilities was in the first instance a message to Assad that he better think seriously about entering a unity government, a power sharing arrangement, which I genuinely believe the Russians want. Secondly, it was part of a Russian effort to come in from the cold, as I like to call it. They, The Russians face $40 oil, pretty strong Western sanctions, and the, their second straight year of economic attraction. Putin may not care about the economy as much as he cares about Ukraine, but it's a big mistake to think he doesn't care about the economy. They don't like the way the coffee smells right now. And part of the decision of hostilities was a, a, a facelift. They want to change the global image of Moscow. It's a you know, they're, they're in a big hole. It's gonna take a while. But after Ukraine, they're ostracized. They didn't mind. But my sense of Putin and the inner circle, the boys as I like to call them, Is that they don't like it anymore? What do they get in Ukraine? They got a bombed-out part of the Donbass. They're going to get to keep it. They got sanctions. Well, they can't get Western money. They just failed to float a eurobond this week. And the cessation of hostilities was part of what is pretty broad effort to uh, put a better image on Russian foreign policy. So I think it was both a message to the West and a message to Assad.
2: Okay, so. To what extent should we regard it as a successful one? I mean, Russia's today is still pretty ostracized. Mm-hmm. Assad hasn't entered into a, a power-sharing right. agreement. On the other hand, you know, six, eight months ago, we were talking about whether Assad was going to fall, and that's not the current level of discussion, and the Saudis haven't intervened. Um, should we understand Russia's intervention? Sort of in beginning to end in Syria as fundamentally successful or or is it you know uh, partially successful or is it not successful how do I, you know is this a win for putin
0: I give it a seven out of ten that's pretty good it beats a four <laughs> the, the, the uh look i I would say this is the beginning of the beginning of the end, you know. If, to poorly paraphrase Henry Kissinger or somebody the 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 um, the um Russians are fighting again I mean you know the, look I mean from the best I can tell they cut about half the number of planes they had there uh, not clear that they've reduced helicopters by much and they're using helicopters a lot more instead of planes right now uh, still about a couple thousand troops the as the ceasefire now has come under severe strain or broken down or you know behind the set of words you want, the Russians are active again, not just against ISIS, but also in fighting around Aleppo, against the same constellation of opposition forces. I think Putin's bottom line is if the current uh, lines of control are fine, but they can't be changed. In other words, the opposition cannot reopen the supply line from Turkey. I think that's a bottom line, a red line for Putin. And he's got more than enough firepower there to Enforced that red line. It's a big misconception that the Russians left Syria. In part, Putin pulled a rope dope on us. They downsized, but they hardly
2: withdrew. Okay, so what did they do? They announced this partial withdrawal. Right. What did it in fact mean?
0: The, the public data is not great on it. We know that they've reduced the number of bombers by about half 50 to 25, approximately. The number of helicopters reduced slightly, but they seem to have replaced the use. The distances aren't very great in many cases. Uh, They seem to have replaced fighter bombers with helicopters for some sorties. They were quieter for a while, and around Palmyra they were bombing ISIS. And for a while it looked like they were bombing ISIS only, and the United States government really liked that. That was when it looked like there could be a little bit of an entente when Kerry talked to Putin and everybody was thinking we're going to make nice, nice again. That's changed. I think we, we, the U.S.-Russian relationship has become strained again. But the Russians, I think instead of, in their mind, having overwhelming force in Syria, now have fully sufficient force in Syria, uh, it's not a huge change in strategy. It's not a U-turn. Look, Putin's a clever guy. He's a great tactician. And here again, he showed his tactical ability to head fake the West. Uh, And in Syria, I think he's got a reasonably good strategy, which is to leave Assad with increasing amounts of control in Western Syria, not complete control, but increasing amounts, and encourage Assad to engage in meaningful power sharing. Now, where the rubber hits the road is whether Putin can get to some end game before the end of the Obama administration. The Russians are pretty clear in their own mind, I think correctly, that it, it's, as much as they don't like Obama, it, 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 it's just going to get worse. It ain't going to get better. That if Hillary Clinton's elected, she's tougher on Russia. And if Ted Cruz gets elected, he's going to be much tougher on Russia. And I don't think, like any of us, they know what to make of Donald Trump. But I think they would like to see Assad in some form of power sharing with a narrow band, but a realistic band of opposition by next January. I think that's doable. The question is whether the Iranians and the regime, the Syrian regime, will go along.
2: Isn't it also a big question whether the uh, opposition will go along? I mean, they were the ones who walked out of Geneva. Yeah, yeah
0: yes, that's correct. I, I think the Russians can find enough fences. The Syrian opposition is a real scattershot, huge number of players. I think the, the Russians can find enough members of the opposition that would participate in some sort of an agreement that they could declare victory in power sharing. And it wouldn't be completely meaningless, I think.
2: And is the, is the Russian vision of power sharing, I mean, when, when, you, when the Americans say a power sharing transition arrangement, no, the idea is always that Assad gets phased out over time or that, you know, yeah. they've never really let go of the Assad must go uh, idea when when the Russians talk about power sharing is the idea to put a layer of opposition as a gloss on continuing the Assad regime indefinitely. Like what what's the vision of a power sharing arrangement?
0: Depends what Russian you talk to. The Russians are clear. Look, one, one thing that's really interesting about Russian foreign policy is that in Syria is that they've outsourced much of the political work dealing with the opposition to a pretty well-known academic. And Lavrov, to the best of my understanding, follows this guy's lead. And and, and, and to, to me, I've known this gentleman for many, many years, and I think that the Russians are serious about Assad sharing power. The problem is that when you get into the U.S. notions of a transitional government leading to elections in 18 months, the Russians are all over the place. They, 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 they don't, they, most elites don't buy into that. They, when you talk to the Iranians on the issue, the answer is Assad is Syria and Syria is Assad. That's not what the Russians say. But if Syria is not Assad, the Russians don't know what it is. They're looking for an answer, but they don't have
2: one. So again, revisionism without a vision.
0: Yeah, but, you know, like other commentators, I try to be fair and balanced. Uh, It's revisionism without a vision, but in this particular case, with some goodwill, I think with some degree of good intention. Uh-huh. And I think what's blinded, in my view, U.S. policy to the detriment of U.S. national interests is having turned you know, the five-letter name Putin into a four-letter word. And I think that's unfortunate because just because it's Putin doesn't mean it's bad, doesn't mean it's wrong.
2: So this gets to the larger... U.S.-Russia relationship and specifically U.S.-Putin relationship. Um, What are we getting wrong about Vladimir Putin? I mean he was kind of the, the darling for a while and then he was the darling who turned into a demon and then he was the demon who invaded Ukraine and now yeah. What's no, the disparity right. between how we do understand him and how we should understand him?
0: Most of what most of what we understand him is pretty correct. Uh, Syria? I mean, look, though. I would assert that Russia was among the most creative, if not the most creative player among the P5 plus run in the Iran talks. I don't think there'd be an Iran agreement today if it wasn't for Putin. Why? Because there is a strong non-proliferation streak in the way that Putin and his elite think about the world. In that case there was a vision. They just didn't trust the Iranians with a nuclear weapon and they want trade ties and sell nuclear reactors and all that stuff, but, but it, it wasn't just greed at all. Syria, Putin's got a strategy in Syria. He's got some strategy, which is that the worst alternative, except for any other, is Assad. Well, you know, it's kind of messy, it's sloppy, but you know, I've had my ears open for years now for a better U.S. idea. Somebody can tell me what U.S. policy is that's going to get us from here to there anywhere, what we're doing or what our goals are, how we're going to get there. Sure, transition, but they got all the guns. I think what we're missing is that he may have, you know, the worst option except for any other. And it's not clear, entirely clear to me why we're not giving him more airtime. Or don't talk to him if he's so bad. I mean, listen to Lavrov or we can find cut out surrogates who are close to him. Uh, how are we going to, the United States, how do we envisage, envisage bringing some stability to non-ISIS Syria, forget about ISIS for a while, to non-ISIS Syria, which is a very important U.S. national interest in that the migrant flow largely coming out of Syria is leading to severe instability and in really freakish politics in Western Europe. We have a real, you know, I get asked a lot, you know, why do we really care about Syria? It's just kind of not market-relevant. There's no oil there. Who cares? Well, you know, the refugee flow could bring down Schengen, could bring down the EU. The Brits may leave the EU on June 23rd. It's a big deal. I don't know what U.S. policy towards Syria is, just put bluntly. I know what Russian policy is. It's distasteful. I'm not sure I'd have a better idea.
2: So... How much of the U.S. reaction to Russian policy in Syria is really, given what you just said, a a reaction to Ukraine that has very little to do with Syria itself?
0: It's a lot. A lot of what we're doing is because Ukraine sanctions are in place, because of the dismemberment of Ukraine, the United States doesn't want to have anything to do with Putin. And the U.S. military, mill-to-mill cooperation is, 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 is very, very thin right now. The U.S. military doesn't have anything to do with the Russian military. So we're not having anything to do with them. But that's my point. That's exactly my point. Is that, and look, I mean, I'm no fan by any means. I mean, I'm very Googleable of what Vladimir Putin did in Ukraine, of Vladimir Putin's human rights record. of Russian behavior on a number of fronts, of rattling cages in the Baltics, of flying bombers within 50 feet of U.S. aircraft. That stuff's kind of nuts. But good policy can walk and you gum at the same time. And we should be approaching Syria on its merits and Russian policy in Syria on its merits. And I think we could do a slightly better job of that.
2: All right, so let me just challenge you a little bit sure. on the question of whether it's really good policy. Yep. So, and this may be a little bit tautological, but one thing, of course, that given the toxicity of Putin that you don't really want to do is to give him a big win. Um, and so when I look at the prospect of letting the genocidal dictator stay in power, uh, having drawn a red line that said he must go, and along the way giving a big win to the guy, the, to the non genocidal dictator who dismembered Ukraine, I don't look at that and say, ah, that's an attractive idea on its merits. Right. Um, I suppose your challenge, well, what's the better alternative is, is a valid one. But I'm, but I'm still hung up on, as I think the Obama administration is, on that just being an unacceptable outcome. Why is that wrong? It just feels to me more no, than I, I get, distasteful.
0: I get it. Well, there's two separate things there. separate elements. We wouldn't be giving Putin a big win. A modest win. Putin has no aspiration to and knows he can't beat ISIS alone. ISIS would still exist. To the extent that we're not beating ISIS. So this this is really
2: just about Western Syria? Well, Well, as far as the Russians are concerned,
0: they want to take care of Western Syria. and When the West is willing to work with them on ISIS, they'll work with the West on ISIS. But the Russians have no interest in or pretense of being able to take on ISIS by themselves. And in fact, it looks like they're not going to have to because the United States is working with the Iraqis to get more and more traction. Mosul may well go next year at some time. ISIS has lost about 25% of its territory in the last 12 months. So they may not need to Um, do it alone. But the Russians are about Western Syria, yeah. And, you know, in private they'll say that. Why should we drop our bombs on ISIS? You guys are doing that and we can't do much about them. So it was never about ISIS for, for, for Putin. It was optically, but it wasn't in reality. No one would like to see Assad go more than I would. I think the the real, the real prize here, though, is the, the best answer to the question of what is in the United States national interest how best to pursue our national interest in Syria. And the first major point is we don't have a good option. But life is about doing the best you can with what you're facing. I personally don't think the United States has a Syria policy, which I think is hard to defend. And I say that as a loyal Democrat, I don't think we have a Syria policy. And secondly, as displaceable as you may find it, Ben, as I may find it, uh, first, to my mind, it is absolute reality that Bashar al-Assad is going nowhere soon. You don't like it, I don't like it. So we can sit here and do nothing, or we can swallow hard and do our best with reality. I got a bad knee. I can't do anything about that either. So I'm not worried about the Putin win. I'm more worried about having Bashar al-Assad around. But again, just because Putin said it doesn't mean it's wrong. Do we want Mr. Baghdadi to be ruling out of Baghdad? No. Al-Nusra? No. The place is a real mess. My understanding of the Israeli view is that, is that Assad is the least distasteful of options for the next few years
2: which the israelis also are giving um uh medical aid to wounded fighters opposite assad right i mean the israelis are sort of having this weird no. both sides of the fence
0: yeah, yeah i mean you know medical aid is humanitarian um by by unofficial interactions with the with, with, with a number of israelis a large number on this issue is that and they're quite sympathetic to what Mr. Putin's doing or trying to do.
2: And how do you understand the Israeli? I mean, the Israelis have had military-to-military relationships in the, in, in the context of the Russian operations that have been, uh, I think, more deconflicted certainly than the Turks. And and um, how do you understand the Israeli response to the Russian intervention?
0: You know, one of the things the Israelis are most proud about is not having gotten involved in Syria, staying out. I think that my understanding of the Israeli response is very distant sympathy for the Russian intervention, uh, broad agreement with Putin that it's the least unattractive option, I mean, certainly, Israeli relations or views of Assad are much more damning than Putin's. But I think it's the same frustration over lack of a better option that provides some common ground.
2: And is your impression that the long-range Russian view is indefinite commitment to Assad? No.
0: I don't think they know, they're grappling. They seriously don't like the guy. (laughs) So, sort of pentagulating sources. My best understanding is two to three years of national unity government, federalization, decentralization of the Syrian government, and then a transitional government followed by elections maybe in you know
2: 4 or 5 years time so it's really not that different from the stated US vision it's
0: just longer
2: t- in time frame and and with less commitment to the transitional components right now yeah
0: because they're scared
2: that the whole
0: place will come tumbling down
2: so if you're if that's the russian position and the american position is uh, what it is, as you articulated it earlier, 18-month transition, assad Well, that's Moscow. our formal position. I
0: don't think that's really our real
2: position. So it doesn't actually sound like there's that much difference between the two. Why is, why is there not a unified uh, uh, well, yeah, I got it. great but, power position? Well, first,
0: you know, I was pretending you were pressing me, Ben, on my best understanding of the Russian position. I think that's what it is. Uh, I don't think any Russian has put it to me exactly that way. So what I'm doing is taking 15 conversations and giving my best judgment as to where the center of gravity is in Moscow. And that's where I think it is. Uh, secondly, why we aren't great power condominium is what we talked about. There's no willingness whatsoever in this town to work with Putin, and there's much the same feeling in Moscow for the U.S. Um, A very senior Russian diplomat once, very recently, I I asked him, you know, so, Sergei, what's the U.S.-Russian agenda you're looking at? And he said, Cliff, let me be very clear. We neither have nor want an agenda with your country. So, you know, it's sort of mutual divorce right now as far as the relationship goes a really bad relationship. You know, and again, that's part of my frustration is I don't think the conceptions are all that different. I don't think they are. Until there's a secular change though in the nature of U.S.-Russian relations, I don't think that's going to be possible for the U.S. to work together. The Europeans, yes. And we've seen the French especially work very closely with Putin. The Germans to a lesser extent and the U.K. to an even lesser extent. But the French and the Germans have had some interest in working with Putin on Syria. It's just the U.S. has been way behind. It's just not playing.
2: Shifting gears a little bit, do you see any prospect for movement in a positive direction with respect to Ukraine, to the extent that a lot of this is really about residue and fallout from the Ukraine intervention. Um, I, I, one wonders if it would be different if that situation were a little bit more resolvable than it appears to be. Is there any reason for optimism there? No, the,
0: the uh, quote unquote resolution really is dependent on Ukraine and Russia fulfilling the so called Minsk benchmarks, which is a series of steps decentralization of Ukraine, amnesty for political prisoners, uh, elections in the separatist held territories, and return of the separatist held territory border with Russia to the government of Ukraine. There's logjams on all of them. The fundamental reason is that the Russians aren't going to leave the Donbass and that President Poroshenko, especially after the governmental crisis he's gone through over the last two weeks, is simply too weak to implement the Minsk Accords, so that I don't think Ukraine will be resolved diplomatically. I think that there will be a frozen conflict when Russia more or less controls separatist territories and it will be like Nagorno-Karabakh or Moldova, it will be a classic Russian frozen conflict for the foreseeable future. I don't but have it's a much hope.
2: but it's a russian frozen conflict in which one of the elements of it is western sanctions on russia that's right which is not true of nagorno karabakh or moldova and so it's frozen in a in a in a posture that that guarantees bad russian western relations um, and it's a little bit hard for me to imagine that the west could unwind that in the absence of some progress in Ukraine without really giving Putin a windfall that I think people w- would be resistant to doing. Well, the West
0: isn't going to unwind that. The U.S. isn't going to unwind that. I, I, I think I'd be surprised if the EU hadn't eased sanctions by the end of next year for internal EU reasons having to do with trade, French and German elections next year, which will give anti sanctions constituencies in those key countries a loud voice. I think we'll see some relaxation with the EU, but no, Russia's not going to go out of the penalty box for a long time. You know, which again, I think is the reason you brought this up, doesn't bode well for Syria. Russia, barring some, you know, bolt from the blue movement on one side or the other, is not going to move very far on its... Putin can't move very far in Ukraine. He is a wartime president. He can't... His, his his 86% approval rating is largely
2: dependent on Ukraine. So is there any reason for optimism?
0: I think there's a fat tail. I don't know, whatever you want. One in five, chance, maybe. That... This kind of thing happens. The West really sits on Potashenko hard. And by hook or by crook, he gets the 300 votes he needs to decentralize the country. The Russians are thrilled, A, and B, really, 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 especially if oil hovers around 40, which I think it will for most of this year, they stay in trouble, want out from under sanctions. They kind of are flexible, Uh, give the border back, which I never thought they would, but maybe with oil so low and the economy contracting again by 1% after 3.7% last year, I think it's a one in five chance that we do get the yes. And I, you know, I, on that, I'm out of consensus. I'm, I'm way out of consensus. I'm a wild optimist in this town. Uh, but I think it can happen, yeah. And then we get back to... the Syria question, because then I think there would be a more workable route. I mean, the real open wound in the U.S.-Russian relationship would have then been resolved. And, uh, you know, I I just want to make really clear that, you know, this is something of a brass knuckles discussion. I mean, for anyone to say that the best of the worst options is to have a murderer run a country, it's very strong stuff. That's how desperate I think we are to find some sort of stability in Syria. I mean, it, my fullest articulation of that would be that I hope the Russians and Assad bring stability in the next three to four years to Western Syria, after which Mr. Assad goes on trial in the Hague. That, that would be my dream scenario. I think he's a war criminal. But what are U.S. interests? What are the interests of our key allies, in Western Europe, that has to be central to
2: the flow of U.S. policy. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, my pleasure.
1: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast via your social networks, Twitter, Facebook, email, and in any other way you can,